Welcome to the Miller Oddcast, a brand new podcast from the Missouri Review. For over 40 years now, TMR has been discovering and publishing the best contemporary writing in fiction, nonfiction, and poetry. Our quarterly magazine appears in print, digital, and audio formats. Learn more at MissouriReview.com. Hello, and welcome to Oddcast number 33. I'm Mark McKee, Managing Editor of the Missouri Review, and it's a thousand o'clock and ten pineapples on the internet. It's my pleasure, in whatever moment this is, to introduce the latest auto-documentary finalist for the 2021 Miller Audio Prize, Janet Horvath, with her piece, A Musician Who Can't Tolerate Sound. Janet Horvath is a lifelong performing classical musician, soloist, author, speaker, and educator. The Minnesota Orchestra's associate principal cello from 1980 to 2012, she has appeared as soloist with orchestra and in recital and chamber music throughout the United States, Canada, and Europe. The author of the award-winning book Playing Less Hurt, an injury prevention guide for musicians, she has worked with instrumentalists to establish a holistic approach to play with ease and eloquence while preserving good posture and maintaining comfort. A pioneer and authority in the area of medical problems of performing artists and a passionate arts advocate, Janet's masterclasses and seminars are well regarded by both amateur and professional musicians, teachers and students, and healthcare providers. Presentations include for the San Francisco Symphony, Utah Symphony, Indianapolis Symphony, Boston Symphony Orchestra, and at colleges, conservatories, and conferences from coast to coast. She has appeared on the BBC, CBC, and NPR national radio stations and television. Her tiny love story appeared in the New York Times, May 2021, and she's an audio documentary finalist for the 2021 Miller Audio Contest, hosted by the Missouri Review. Recent essays include A Musician Afraid of Sound, published in The Atlantic, October 2015, and in national and international music publications. Musical America, Chamber Music America, Strings Magazine, The Brass Herald, and Strad Magazine among others. A contributing writer for the online classical music e-magazine Interlude HK, she has penned over 300 feature articles about music and musicians. Through her writing and musical performances, Janet creates restorative conversations, offers spiritual sustenance, and explores music's life-bringing and healing power. She is currently at work on a memoir to those same ends. She earned her master's degree in music performance from Indiana University, studying with Janos Starker, and completed her MFA in creative writing from Hamline University, St. Paul, Minnesota. The following is from her artist notes. Today, 10 years after leaving the Minnesota Orchestra, after a devastating hearing injury and enduring the difficult process of recovery, I find myself uniquely prepared for the trials of the last 18 months. I have already reinvented myself as a writer. I have already lived through isolation and loneliness. If there's a silver lining to 2020, it's that we as a society have had a break from our noisy, hectic lives filled with too much sound. That we realize how many professions and businesses can be released from the rigors of in-person, nine-to-five travel during rush hour. That our livelihoods may be malleable and adaptable. Perhaps we have learned to value the quiet and silence we've experienced that has allowed us to ruminate and dream. It's certainly been better for the environment. Through these troubling times, we all have had to avoid loud gatherings, restaurants, sports events, and concerts. I will always protect my hearing. I know only too well how devastating hearing injury can be, which can impede interaction with others and participation in life. I hope my story, 
will encourage others to do the same. Make sure to stick around after Horvath's powerful work of memory to hear contest editor Bailey Boyd and I ruminate and exclaim over it in wonder. And now, a musician who can't tolerate sound. It's 2010, and my husband can't kiss me even on the cheek because the slightest touch sets off ripples of pain in my head, my face, and my jaw. Every noise is an assault. A baby squeals, an ATM pings, dishes clatter. A leaf blower feels like a knife pirouetting in my ear. In sympathy, my husband and son tiptoe around me and recoil with each ding. When I must go out, I stuff my ears with custom earplugs and wear noise-canceling headphones, but they don't help much. It's impossible to predict when noise will bring me to my knees. I'm a professional musician who can't tolerate sound. I should have realized my career was over that night, August 2006, an evening of Broadway favorites. I sat dead center as principal cello of the Minnesota Orchestra with the drum set, piano, electric guitars, and conductor directly in front of me. Three Broadway singers wearing brilliantly colored sequined outfits pranced across the stage clutching handheld microphones. During classical music performances, we rarely use microphones, but for our pops programs, the stage would often hold speakers that blasted the music back onto the stage so the singers could hear themselves. Tonight, there were eight black beasts all the way across the stage, one of them no more than two feet from my left ear. It seemed perilously close, but with no time to move the speaker, I stuffed my ears with earplugs and swallowed my objections. I'd be a bit shell-shocked, I assumed, just a temporary annoyance. Thunderous applause followed an encore from the Phantom of the Opera. As I exited the stage, I felt an excruciating sensation in my ears, which radiated down my neck and into my face, tongue, and teeth. Pain hardly describes it. Hurrying out of the building to escape the backstage commotion, every noise I discovered made it worse, including the sound of my own voice. I drove home barely able to see through my tears. That night I lay in bed, praying the pain would subside. But the next morning, during rehearsal, the sound on stage felt ear-piercing, and I had to wear earplugs for a classical program for the first time in my career. Since I began playing as a child, I'd loved the cello, the instrument whose sound is closest to the human voice. But now, with the world's volume stuck on high, I yearned to escape to silence. In a flurry of anxiety, I saw otolaryngologists and neurologists heading from one appointment to another. The ENT exams, neurological assessments, and MRIs revealed no abnormalities. In fact, my hearing test came back better than normal. I could be a spy, I heard so acutely. Finally, one of the doctors offered me a diagnosis. I'd sustained an acoustic shock injury to my left ear. Ear trauma is permanent with no efficacious treatments. He suggested loading up on vitamins, abstaining from caffeine and alcohol, and keeping my life as silent as possible. For three months, I withdrew to near solitary confinement with communication constrained to email. No TV, no radio, no phone, 
and worst of all, no music. Isolated from human contact and from the thing I loved most, life became nearly intolerable. The silent exile seemed to help. I returned to my position with a major compromise. I would always have to wear a left earplug. Soon my brain adjusted to hearing this way, but as a precaution, I kept noisy activities at bay, even avoiding the car radio. Beneath it all ran an undercurrent of worry. What kind of a musician was I now? Would I be able to maintain a high level of playing? And most distressing, what if it got worse? Terrified to admit I might be losing the music, I continued to play the full schedule with earplugs, flinching with every forte. But despite precautions, my condition worsened, and in 2009, my right ear, like my left, started to hurt. After more doctor hopping, I met an ENT who understood my condition. Although hearing tests came back normal, I developed a noise-induced ailment called hyperacusis, an auditory injury caused by repeated exposure to high decibels. Hyperacusis may ensue after one ear-splitting auditory event, an acoustic shock as in my case, or the injury can occur from cumulative exposure to intense noise. It's characterized by abnormal sensitivity, in other words, the total breakdown of tolerance to all sound. As the doctor sprinted through his explanation, I was actually relieved. So I'm not going crazy after all. The severe pain, the dizziness, the fear of sound, and the strange fluttering sensation were caused by my brain processing noise much louder than it actually is. Musicians like to make a lot of noise. In fact, we often say only half in jest, fast is good, loud is better, fast and loud is best. On stage, decibel levels can climb precipitously. Imagine being surrounded by 100 musicians wailing, the piccolo trilling, the brass blasting, the cymbals crashing. I had decades of hearing ahead of me, the doctor told me gently, but prolonged exposure would only make things worse. It would be best if I did something else, something quiet. Do something else? Playing cello and making music was my life the core of my identity. And besides, in the summer, the orchestra was set to embark on a tour of Europe's most celebrated concert halls, London, Berlin, Amsterdam, Vienna. I couldn't miss that. Surely I could hang on a few more months. The ear has 20 to 30,000 hair cells, the nerve endings responsible for carrying the electrical impulses through the auditory nerve to the brain. These delicate receptors bend or flatten as sounds enter the ear, typically springing back to normal in a few hours or overnight. But over time, loud sounds can cause permanent damage as hair cells lose their resilience. Frequent and intense exposure to noise causes these receptors to flatten down, stiffen, and eventually break. The damage can interfere with the ability to determine the location of a sound, cause extreme sensitivity and pain, and make it impossible to discern language with background noise. One in 20 Americans, or 48 million people, report some degree of hearing impairment. An alarming statistic, but hearing protection isn't a health habit that's often discussed. 
the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health caps the continuous exposure to decibel levels at 85 decibels for an eight-hour day. Decibels work logarithmically. Permissible exposure times must be halved for each increase of three decibels. Any exposure above 115 decibels, even for a few seconds, is risky. But life has become toxically noisy. City traffic already reaches 85 dB. Restaurant racket exceeds 100 dB. Crowded spaces like a stadium or an orchestra performance space can hit 120 dB. The exposure time and proximity to the sound exponentially compound the risk of damage. Still, people willfully jeopardize their hearing every day. Sound exposure is cumulative, creeping up on those who listen to music with earbuds for hours at a time or multiple times a day. According to the American Medical Association, one in five teens suffer from hearing damage and cannot hear whispers, raindrops, or consonants. Millions of young people are affected by tinnitus or the constant ringing or roaring in your ears. Noise, not aging, is the leading cause of permanent hearing injury. Even a small amount of hearing loss can have a profound negative effect on comprehension and social development. Untreated, hearing impairment can affect brain function and is associated with early onset dementia. The orchestra's schedule in 2010 included several massive works. Our program for the European tour included Beethoven's Symphony No. 9 with its famous Ode to Joy, which calls for a 250 voice chorus, vocal soloists, and more than 100 musicians. I writhed through the concerts, hid in hotel rooms. The worst pain struck during one of the last performances, which took place in London's most iconic venue, Royal Albert Hall. The elliptical red granite building holds thousands of audience members. Paralyzed by the ovation and the euphoria, weeping in the backstage dressing room afterwards, I knew I was done. Once we returned home, I met with the maestro and Minnesota Orchestra Management and resigned my position of 31 years as associate principal cello. Unable to face my colleagues, I left them a note with my goodbyes and departed the hall for the last time. Bitter tears flowed as I drove home to a cloistered existence, a musician afraid of sound. Emotionally charred, relegated to silence, I couldn't bear to enter my studio. Musical phrases practiced for decades swirled in the spheres unhinged. My cello, my constant companion since childhood, lay dormant in its case. Taunted by a closet full of long black clothes, our required uniform of smooth silks, creamy taffeta, gossamer velvets, I wrenched each dress off its hanger and thrust them into bags, destination goodwill. Awakening each morning in a fog of loss, I became subdued and soft-spoken. It was excruciating that what I loved so much could bring me so much pain. The doctors didn't know what else to tell me. Research about my condition was scarce. Still, my husband investigated tenaciously for months until finally he stumbled upon a clinic that specializes in hyperacusis and tinnitus at the Oregon Health and Sciences University in Portland. 
Three months later, I boarded the airplane with the heaviest duty earplugs I could find. In a tiny examining room at the clinic, my ears convulsed every time they were touched. After two days of appointments filled with tests and exams from multiple specialists, the doctors fit me with specially programmed devices, modified hearing aids that I could control with a remote. The attenuators, they said, would lower the volume of sound without altering its clarity. The final step was to test them. I recoiled when the doctor brandished a spoon and emphatically clanged a dish, but it didn't hurt. We went out into the common areas of the hospital, even passing by the noisy cafe, but it didn't hurt. With the protection of my new hearing devices, they told me, I could embark on the next phase of treatment, a desensitization strategy to teach my brain to accept sound again. I would need to learn to tune out noise around me. In other words, I'd need to unlearn my musician's finely owned ability to listen. The specialist gave me an armload of CDs of pleasant sounds, rainfall, wind blowing, ocean waves, that I was to play for a few minutes, gradually increasing to several hours a day as low volume background noise to my da normal daily activities. I should take it slow, perhaps a year or more, boosting the volume by degrees. Eventually my tolerance might start to improve. Then the doctors added a dreaded caveat. With my endurance so compromised, my hearing likely would never return to normal levels. But what about music, I asked. Their answer was noncommittal. I would never be an orchestral musician again, might never tolerate noisy venues. But while the retraining program couldn't guarantee success, improvement might occur, perhaps enough to play the cello. I became a zealous patient. It took months, but my sound sensitivity slowly decreased. With my hearing devices in, my husband and I could once again venture out to see romantic films, dine in restaurants if we avoided the weekend crowds, and invite a small group of friends over. But my fingers itched to play. Two years after my trip to the Oregon clinic, I entered my studio and took the cello out of its case. Gingerly at first, and with the left earplug in, my fingers chafed against the slender metal strings. I sounded like a complete beginner and my muscles ached, but I persisted. Now, a decade later, I can play with a few other musicians in a modest-sized room. It isn't an orchestra, but it's thrilling and a privilege to inspire audiences once again. Life is unthinkable without music. Well, hello there, the internet. I'm Mark McKee with Bailey Boyd, contest editor for the Missouri Review. And what you've just heard is A Musician Who Can't Tolerate Sound by Janet Horvath. Bailey, I want to point out first, before we get into this piece's tragic aspect, that there's a line that, uh, that is near and dear to my heart from the beginning as she is describing her condition after this, uh, this experience that she has that she later details in 2006, where she first experienced this uh, acoustic shock. And she describes the quality of, of, of hearing things as being like a leaf blower, uh, sounding like uh, a knife doing a pirouette in her ears. And it just, 
it goes so well with my feelings about leaf blowers that I wanted to point that out before we really start talking about things. You, you too think that there's a, that it's similar to pirouettes? I had this thing at the beginning of the pandemic where everything was so quiet, right? When, when, when people first went indoors and were kind of on lockdown and I was trying to write and it's at a certain point I was writing something about the lone sound of kind of a chainsaw. And I think I realized a couple of weeks later, like, oh, that might've been a leaf blower. <laughs> but anyway, back to Horvath's piece. Um, I found listening to this at, at the first, the first time, especially just a sense of kind of profound tragedy yeah. at her experience. Yeah, I agree. I mean, for 31 years um, to have that career that's really devoted to listening and sound to have that capability be impacted so significantly. Um, and she does, there's these little touches that she gives too when she's talking about how the cello had been her companion since childhood mm -hmm. and how it was the musical instrument that was cl that's closest to the human voice. I mean, all these things just radically underscore this experience that she has in 2006 where the the, the massive sound monitors that are that are that are playing um induce in her this and again this is a term i didn't know but i'm um i suppose i'm glad to know it even though it has kind of horrific effects but acoustic shock syndrome mm -hmm. and her and her details and her kind of experience there it's just it's it's anguishing to kind of listen to it is it's so heartbreaking <laughs> um and and also this piece really invited me to notice things that perhaps I had taken advantage or I had taken for granted not not being able to hear raindrops for instance um Oh, yeah, what's that? There's that sequence where she's like, if there's a certain segment of the population who who describes themselves as having some level of hearing impairment, and some people just can't hear whispers or raindrops. There's a third thing that I'm I'm not thinking of in the in the moment, but I just I mean, again, this speaks to the level of detail and specificity that really makes this uh, what would be. A, a powerful and affecting kind of like instance anyway, or uh, experience just really deepens it because you start to think of like what gets lost if you can't hear whispers right? and raindrops. I mean, to have those canceled out by this, by a level of hearing impairment, that means, I mean, it's just cutting, it feels like it's cutting a whole, a, a sliver out of the experience of being alive. And it really, I mean, I, I think one of the profound effects that a piece like this has is that it makes you aware in ways that if you're lucky, if you're fortunate enough not to suffer, say, hearing impairment, but all kinds of accessibility uh, issues, that it really, it really can kind of give you a much deeper insight into how inaccessible a lot of the world is. For sure. I was thinking the, the same thing. Um, about accessibility and about um, folks with disabilities and just noticing, yeah, exactly like you're saying, just noticing the, the privilege of, of ability. This piece does a really elegant job at bringing awareness mm -hmm. to many, many of those things. And I think it does so, so artistically as well by 
giving us that all of that um, incredible information that we get here about decibel levels and when what decibel level qualifies as um, a line that I love or a phrase that I love as toxically noisy. And so for me, I, I wasn't really sure what decibels are, right? Like that was difficult for me to picture, but then um, Horvath does such a good job at kind of translating that information so well, so that, oh, actually general traffic noise (laughs) is actually kind of up there. Um, And so that pe- that part of this piece really, really helped for me to digest all of this very specific information. And I thought that was, that was so, so well done. And I admired that part of this piece so much, just being able to give me all of this information and then doing that additional work of kind of translating it for me as well. Yeah, I found myself writing down in my notes uh, just how loud is life. And it turns out it's really loud. (laughs) And for me, and we were, as we were kind of discussing this earlier, it just gave rise to this kind of reflection about, I mean, we both work on a college campus at the University of Missouri. And I've been there for quite a while, first as a grad student and and later as a teacher now uh, with TMR. But I remember even, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, kind of like seeing just the kind of proliferation of these earpieces and, and thinking, I had this thought originally, like, oh, people are just going to start singing out loud and they're just going to assume that nobody's listening to them because everybody else is in their own, you know, has their own kind of sound system set up as they're traveling from class to class. And I haven't seen that as much, What I see more And what I see a lot and which is still unnerving for me is when people are walking around in in earbuds that I can't see at first and I just see people talking. And then it it takes me a second, even now it takes me a second and and then I realize, oh, they're on the phone to their mom or they're on the phone to their their partner or something, uh, or maybe they're scheduling an oil change, but they're they're just a bunch of people walking around individually on their own conversations, just talking out loud. And it's uh, this, this piece kind of laced through those observations even and kind of illuminated illuminated ways uh, of thinking about, about where we are as a culture and especially knowing that this affects a certain, that this kind of impairment affects a certain segment of the population, but that all of us are in some respects kind of vulnerable to kind of hurting our hearing. And we're not, we're we're not just, we're not, we're not kind of aware of it, but we're also, and, and because we're not aware of it, we're not as kind of like perhaps cautious about just how much audio we, you know, we subject ourselves to, but not only that, but like all kinds of audio equipment, especially kind of like with earbuds or like high quality kind of like high fidelity kind of, you know, beats, uh, headphones, we're having the potential for hearing impairment aggressively marketed to us all the time. Right. And again, I think that's, I think that's, you know, Um, just one aspect of why this piece is so important too, of just doing the work of kind of making those connections and, um, and making it, making it something that we can, that, that we can be aware of rather than an abstract idea that, you know, we don't really know what the decibels are of our earbuds or of our noise canceling headphones or things like that. And now 
you know, anyone who listens to this can think, well, gosh, what are the decimal ranges of, of those things? What is my TV set at when we're watching Netflix or something? Just, and, and I think it goes back to something we were talking about earlier about being invited to notice more things about our, our world. Um, and that's, that's what, that's what I love about this piece. Like what other things are we going to start paying attention to that we hear that we didn't originally? And, you know, how much, I know the next time I hear raindrops, it's a sunny day here. Um, I know the next time I hear raindrops, I'm definitely going to pay attention to, to that much more, um, much more acutely and to, to kind of, to pick that up because that's what Horvath kind of invites us to do here. But yeah, just, just being able to look at, look at our worlds differently, notice, notice access, um, notice that we, you know, we could have a much more accessible world and, and should, and, um, but also noticing the things about our own individual worlds too, um, and, and inviting us to, to think about those a little bit more deeply. Yes, indeed. And, you know, as we're, as we're kind of going along in this piece, there's, there's a few, there's a feeling of kind of futility and real, and real kind of, and real kind of despair uh, that, you know, we're hoping as human beings kind of get answered with some sort of, you know, with some sort of fix. And eventually there is, I mean, her husband, as she describes, like searches far and wide for any, for anything that might be able to help her cope with, uh, with this condition that she has. And she eventually finds this place in, or they eventually find this place in Oregon. And not only, I think as audience members, do we, do we hear hope in that for this particular narrators for this particular um, cellist but for me as I'm listening well I'm, I'm hearing a, a much more a much more kind of widespread uh, hopefulness just because human beings have seen this as a problem dedicated themselves to studying it and to developing ways to to basically through a kind of auditory therapy kind of like restore to some degree um, hearing that even if it never kind of goes back to normal for her, allows her a measure of restoration of this life that's just been, that's been so, I mean, just so integral to who she is. And I was very thankful for that, uh, for that, for that, that part of, of the piece, because you, you always want and it's always very gratifying to, to, I think, to, to find people that solve problems or that, or that are putting their shoulder against the wheel to, to, to help solve those problems or, or kind of ameliorate them, at least. I think this is a little connected to what you were saying in one of our earlier discussions about uh, what the cost of kind of expertise is, mm-hmm. that yeah. there seems to be this kind of and this, I mean, I'll let you say it because it's, it's, it, it was your insight. But I think that when we're talking about people who have dedicated themselves to greatness and excellence, it perhaps comes at a cost that we don't always uh, fully appreciate. Yeah. And you brought up um, artistry too, um, which I think is definitely appropriate here. And, and something I was thinking about as well um, after after um, the therapy is, has kind of begun. Um, and, then, um, and then 
we hear that poor Beth has to like retrain um, and, and she uses the phrase unlearn how to listen mm-hmm. in order um, to, to protect, to protect her hearing. And, and yeah, it, it, that's so interesting, right? Because, and, and she mentions like, as a musician, like, this is what I do. This is, you know, I, I listen, um, I listen to sounds and I make sounds. Um, and then having, you know, that, that very long career, long and successful career, and then having to unlearn those things. S- such an interesting arc there, yeah. And so, yeah, I was thinking about about the sacrifices or um, or potential sacrifices, I guess, or potential effects of of a long um, devoted career to something. Um, what kind of consequences? I don't know if that's the right yeah. word, but um, maybe just effects. Mm-hmm. Well, if- it's it's hard it's hard it's hard for me to think of them as kind of as anything, but but costs or or, or even if we're going to give them their full weight as sacrifices, sacrifices that one makes. I mean, I think that you, you bring up a lovely moment in, in the piece where she has to unlearn how to listen. There's a kind of profound irony to that being the thrust of her kind of her recovery, because I really feel like this piece is actually teaching us how to listen better. In, a, in addition to all the other kinds of conversations it can give rise to, which is a, is which you and I have found is is pretty is pretty amazing in and of itself, it does kind of ask us to to refocus on the world we move through auditorially. And yeah, I think that. And with with that being said, I think it bears another listen. Oh, for sure. And um, thanks for thanks for listening to us as well. Um, we've. We've been talking quite a bit about this piece and it, it definitely opens up so many avenues for, I think, reflection or for um, observation. And certainly I think another listen is going to reveal even more information to, um, to absorb, but also even more kind of, I like the phrase that you use, lovely moments, because I think this piece is full of those as well. And so I also echo, echo the invitation to listen again. Absolutely. And this, I mean, even with the, with the word echo, I'm, I'm realizing the piece has just made me very, very alive to anything uh, sound oriented. And again, as Bailey says, uh, thanks for being with us. And we hope you will keep your ear bent for uh, the next oddcast, which will soon be on its way. Yeah, I think it's time we wave goodbye. You heard that, this right? Time, this time Mark waved too, though. I just, I need to... <laughs> And well, I yes, we're, we're, grow- we're growing now. We're growing. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks. Take care. And bye. Bye. Thanks for being here with us for Miller Oddcast 33, featuring Janet Horvath's audio documentary, A Musician Who Can't Tolerate Sound. Oddcast 34 is on its way, so make sure your ears are on their toes. Thanks, as always, to the Missouri Review contest editor, Bailey Boyd, and to Patricia Miller for her generous support for the Miller Audio Prize. Just as a reminder, TMR is open for submissions year-round, and we remain dedicated to discovering and publishing the best contemporary writing in fiction, nonfiction, and poetry. Be heard. Give us the opportunity to discover you. Subscribe or submit your work today. 
In addition, we have tons of exhilarating and free creative content to read, listen to, and even watch via our website. Learn more at MissouriReview.com.